No one is planning for the future, the long-term health and success of an 18-year-old brand if they're like, oh, got to return the money to my shareholders in seven years. So be careful who you take money from, what type of firm it is. You know, sometimes borrowing can be more expensive, but at least you own, you know, your destiny versus an investment in someone else telling you what that destiny should be. This is What's Next podcast with you, Mindy Francis. We're talking fashion, business, and what's next. Let's go. Rebecca Minkoff is a co-founder of the American fashion brand Rebecca Minkoff, founded in 2005 with her brother, Yuri Minkoff. The fashion empire is an industry leader in accessible luxury handbags, accessories, and apparel and can be found globally at hundreds of retailers. Rebecca Minkoff's playful and subtly edgy designs integrate elements of bohemian femininity with a little bit of rock and roll. Effortlessness is perfectly blended with sophistication for an aesthetic that combines West Coast mentality with a downtown sensibility. For nearly 20 years, the brand has consistently managed to be at the forefront of fashion and technology. In September 2018, with a deep desire to support other female founders, Rebecca established the Female Founder Collective, a network of businesses led by women that invest in women's financial power across the socioeconomic spectrum by enabling and empowering female-owned businesses. What's next podcast? Please welcome superstar entrepreneur Rebecca Minkoff to the show. Welcome, Rebecca. Hello. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. I'm tired, but that's just my fault. That's because I have a baby. I was just going to say you sleeping on me. How old is the baby now? He's six months old and I took him into my bed and now we're like, we snuggle hard all night, but it keeps me up. Fair. You have every reason to be tired, but you look fabulous. Thank you. You're glowing. Thank you, Subway. And forgive me, everyone, my voice today, I'm struggling, but I I I refuse, yeah, it's raspy. I refuse to not make this interview because of my voice. So here we are performing. So Rebecca, I know your story. I've heard it so many times and I'm such a fan, but please take our listeners through your professional journey and how you got where you are today. Oh man. So I really fell in love with sewing uh, when I was about eight years old. I wanted this dress. I was eight. I guess Uh, I don't know everything. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted a dress. And we walked by a store and it was 20 bucks. My mom was like, no, I'm not buying that for you, which was like the mantra of my life. No. And she said, I'll teach you how to sew it. And so once she taught me how to sew and I realized I could make anything in my imagination that was incredibly freeing and powerful and having been bullied for being too thin, which you don't hear about often. You know, I wish I would have been like, yeah, I was, the time. A, I was a skinny kid with big feet. So I know <laughs> it was tough out there. I couldn't find clothing that would fit me. And I just started making my own clothes. And so when you're going through those awkward years, like those adolescent 13 to 16, which is terrifying, um, you know, the fact that I could make something that fit me or refit something was gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and so I knew that becoming a designer was something I wanted to do. And for Hanukkah, we would get like one present every year and I would always get a magazine subscription. Wow. And so if my brother didn't steal at first, it was like the most exciting thing. The date arrived and I was like, I got to get to New York. So, um, when I was 18, uh, my parents raised all of us like, you want to go to college? Great. You can pay for it. Figure it out. You can apply. Like there was no like, this is your plan that we have for you. Right. So I just said, I'm moving to New York and I'm going to start working. And they were like, great. And I was like, cool. So we're going to get me that apartment. No, you're going to live with your cousin on her floor. Okay. Um, so I moved to New York. 
uh, I managed to get an internship with a designer that my brother had met at a party and uh, started working right away and fell in love with New York City and design. And, you know, after working for him for three years, I was like, if I'm going to work this hard, it's going to be for myself. Right. So I was 21. Call me naive. 21. 21. I started like I had a five piece collection. I sold it locally in boutiques. My first fashion show was September 10th, 2001. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was a group show. The audience is filled with like people's parents. It was awesome. Um, and then the next day, everything changed. And I, I felt like I needed to do something. Yeah. And I said, I had this I Love New York shirt that I'd already cut up and bedazzled and people liked it. But I said, okay, you know, all the pro- profits are going to go to help support the work that the Red Cross is doing. And so... For 9-11. For 9-11. So because of that moment and people wanting to support New York, like that t-shirt was in magazines over and over again. And like the orders would just come, you know, it was one website, like barely functioning. And that's all I did. And I ended up getting fired, but in a good way. She was like, you're fired, go do it. And that moment didn't give me success but it got name recognition so that I could call a boutique and they wouldn't hang up on me. Right. And I could go in and say something and they'd be like, all right, we'll listen to you for two minutes because... And what do you mean that it didn't give you success? Monetary success or... Monetary success or stability as a brand. You know, like every dollar I had was going into those t-shirts. Right. You know, I didn't properly calculate a margin to make any money. Yeah. Um, But it did allow that foot in the door. Right. And so I kept at it for about four years and then had an idea for this bag. And an actress asked if she, you know, I could make her one. And I lied to her. And she said, I said, yeah, I'll get it done. (laughs) And that was the birth of the morning after bag. And because of her asking me and this, this website called Daily Candy, which would, do you remember Daily Candy? Of course. Love one email a day when you wanted email in your inbox. (laughs) Um, And that was what really moved the needle. And so, you know, Flash forward 18 years, we have a global brand, lots of categories, but that was the moment where it was like, okay, we're sticking with this bag and here we go. Nice, nice. So fantastic. Love that journey. I'm sure it's going to inspire someone young who's looking to get a jump start. But I want to point out that you did, it was four years that you were selling this t-shirt, right? And and some other clothing and going into debt, like $60,000 worth of debt on a right. credit card I couldn't pay off. Right. And my dad had co-signed the card, which is why the limit was so high, but he wasn't paying the bill. Right. And he was like, how are you going to pay this You're bill? on your own. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was quite scary um, at the time. And I, I literally was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay this off. So it was four years of hustling. I was a stylist on the side. That actually is what paid the bills. Um, and feeling like, is this ever going to happen? Right. You know, and many moments I didn't think it would. Right. And then it did. And then it did. Well, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, it's not easy to maintain the cachet of a fashion brand for nearly two decades, um, especially since fashion is so trend driven. How did you do it? So I think it's a combination of always having a product that is trend right, but not so trendy that when you look at it, you're just like, oh, really? You still have that bag? Like when when I came up, you know, it was the It bag, you know, the Fendi Spy bag or the Chloe Paddington, like all these bags that you had to have. And then three months later, you're like, 
damn girl, put that bag away. Right. That's ugly. And so I think my bag was classic enough that someone could have it. I mean, I meet women who still have my original bags, you know, and they don't feel outdated. Um, And then I think that it was this connection with the customer that we cultivated. Back then, no one would talk to a customer. We even had interventions with stores and media saying, don't talk to your customer. That's belittling you. You need to be like the perfect designer in the ivory tower. And we were like, well, we can't advertise in Vogue. We don't have any money. Our only venue is stores. D2C was not even a word then. So this is our chance to talk to her and like be with her and get to know her. And so I think that really helped. And then our technology innovation, which we can give all the credit to my brother for the last couple of years, um, uh, really helped us be in the zeitgeist of where technology was taking fashion and democratizing it. Right, right. And so through the years, you've had so many exciting and exhilarating um, activations from a technology perspective, you know, that I've witnessed. Can can we walk through that journey a little bit? Um, boy, I'm, I'm thinking back to the first time you put the reflective mirror in a store. Yeah. That was like, you know, revolutionary for that moment in time. It's so competitive out there and there's so many brands. And I just feel that fashion's always been very slow from a technology perspective, but your brand has always been a step ahead. Yeah. So I think in the way that as a designer, I can tell you that your emerald green, you know, linen, beautiful, you know, pantsuit is the color and style of the summer. My brother had that bub with technology. He did technology before he partnered with me. And so I feel like he had this sense of what would always be coming. So whether it was um, wearables the same day as Apple, we launched. We didn't know Apple was going to launch that day, but like, thank God we did it the same day. Or we launched self-checkout the same day that Amazon did. Again, we didn't know that. Um, Our store, you know, that technology and that idea was really powered by him. But talking to women and, and asking us, what are our pain points when we're shopping? And then let's build in the same way on a website, you optimize for the shopping experience. Let's do it in the store. Um, and so I've hopefully not disappointed him in continuing the torch since his departure from the brand in keeping us, you know, whether it's Web3, NFTs. Um, I think I'm, I'm searching for what's next. Right. I don't know yet. Right. If I'm being honest with you. But I think our goal is to always have that be part and parcel to what we do. I think that's a very earnest statement. Like, you know, many people don't know what's next in their business, but it's a deep desire to um, have the interest in looking, the curiosity of wanting to figure out what's next that keeps you on on the edge. I mean, like you, you guys have always had something. You were, you know, one of the first to step into the NFT space with your project. And can we talk about that again? Yeah, we can. I was the first female American fashion designer to do it. (laughs) I'm joking as I say that because we're always trying to find like a way to say we're first. Right. So we're like slicing up all the things. (laughs) Um, So uh, 2021, September of 21, we launched our first uh, group of NFTs with the dematerialized. And we had, you know, physical twins. Um in almost 90% of it. And what we didn't anticipate is we didn't even promote the NFTs. They sold out in nine minutes. Like wow. all that had happened was dematerialized, emailed the list, done. I was like, we don't even get it to put it up an Instagram post, like nothing, not even an email. Um, and so that was really exciting. 
And then we came back and did another drop with them, but that one was a more fantastical sort of like, well, why bother having anything physical? Like this is our opportunity to play with stuff that you can't do in the real world. So that was also successful and and allowed us to test like we can sell a $3,000 NFT and a $150 NFT. Um, and then we did another collaboration with Mavion right. where we really tried to gamify the experience. So it acts as a token for experiences. Um, and then if you matched two, you would get a bag. So that was, you know, that was last summer. So I think we're just trying to keep it interesting. And obviously it's, you know, that area has taken some hits. Hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Lots so, of changes. It's so many changes. So now I view these things as, again, are they, are they loyalty tokens? that hopefully get you access in places. And so as as I'm thinking of what we're doing in the arena, it's always going to have a ton of utility. Um, it's not so much about the art. It's really about what what can you give to someone that money can't buy. Right, right. That's exciting. That's exciting. So what, um, you know, you have such a great social media following and presence and so forth. What is that like for your business? It's a little laborious having to stay abreast of all of that and keep things going. But it's such a great point of contact for your consumers. I think it's the place where, you know, she she probably is not going to go to Google anymore. She's going to Instagram to discover. And so for us, it's a place to sort of say, what is this brand about if I'm not going to be in her physical stores or I'm not going to be around her? And so you see me uh, and it's important. I'm there as a connection point to the customer. And then you also see the brand and the models and the product and so um, we try and sort of balance those two um, because our customer is 18, but she's also 42. Right. So we're trying to like stretch that girl out from like the 18-year-old's buying her first bag, the 21-year-old's buying her going out bag. I no longer go out unless I'm forced to, so I'm buying the tote. <laughs> um, and so I think that's where you see that world of ours. Right. So, you know, it's so... Um you know, our, the folks that we have on the show are great entrepreneurs and thought leaders, yourself included. And it takes so much to run a successful business. And I think our listeners are tuning in to really glean from the folks that we have on the show some insights. And so you've had such a great run. What advice do you have for someone running a business, an empire as you are? It is not going to happen overnight. And you better work. You know, I know Kim Kardashian got in trouble for saying, you know, work hard. Right. You have to work hard. Right. It is not easy. And it's often more failure than success. And so whatever it is you do, you have to love it so much that as every day that it, you get up and it sucks, if I can swear. Yeah. You're like, still love it. I can see a glimmer. Maybe I don't love it as much today, but like I'm going to get up and do that thing. And I think that in our day and age, we're, we're a, we have instant gratification with almost everything we do from our car services, you know, to, to getting what we want overnight or same day delivery. And then you just think, oh, I'm going to just do this and it's going to be easy and I'm going to be rich tomorrow and successful or whatever that means to you. No, there are no f shortcuts. It is hard and it is long. And if you want a brand, part of that is established through longevity. And so you see these things that hit and flame out, you know, and they didn't establish or figure out how to have that longevity that becomes that lasting thing in someone's mind. 
And my my CEO was pointing out to me, Kate Spade didn't become huge or have that hockey stick until the brand was 25 years old. Wow. Which I didn't know. And she goes, we're still young. We're still 18. And I was like, okay, girl, let me buckle up and get back in for another seven years. I've been at this for a while. (laughs) So that just made me go, wow, you know, longevity and brands take time to build. And you can't shortcut that. You can shortcut a lot of things, but you can't, you can't shortcut that. Prudent advice, prudent advice. So you've taken your time in this business. And, you know, what I love is how you've expanded into other areas and pivoted in different ways. Um, you now have a podcast. How has that experience been for you? And what inspired you to even start podcasting? So I launched the podcast in the same time period I launched Female Founder Collective because I was doing a mentor program within my company and having these women in to have my employees here and then having them in my stores to have customers come in and get a different experience. And I was like, okay, this is great, but like I can reach tens of thousands of women if I just go online. So that was when I launched it. And to me, the women I interview I'd say 50% are women you've heard of and you think they have it all figured out and you think they never failed. And to hear that they failed and they struggled and like what got them out of that, I think for me is incredibly rewarding. And then half the women you've never heard of. And I hope that now you discovered, you know, the first black owned winery in the United States and how these two sisters that grew up not knowing each other met and maybe you go support that business you know, or the story of a woman who overcame drug addiction and being orphaned to being one of the most successful financial uh, analysts and uh, what's her, like futurists, you know, to help you manage your money as a woman. So I think um, hearing the stories of failure and struggle is like, you're not alone. It's all hard for everybody. And here's a tip or trick of how she did it. Amazing. Yeah. So let's talk about Female Founders Collective. Okay. I mean, so a recent article um, in Forbes, the heading reads, uh, how designer Rebecca Minkoff and a former girl boss exec, Allison Wyatt, are helping future female leaders thrive. Talk about that captivating headline. Like, take us through the moment when you decided to start the Female Founder Collective in 2018. So just to put it out there, because I'm sure people listening are like, wait, how did she have a baby and start a podcast and launch the Female Founder Collective? Superwoman. Isn't she a designer? Um, So to be clear, when I went out on leave, we sort of said, okay, your direct reports of 17 are going to collapse into one. We're going to hire, you know, a creative director over the team and she and she reports to you. So 17 people down to one opens up a lot of time. Right. So there's a creative director overseeing the team and, and that's your and, point of con- That's mm-hmm. fantastic. And managing the day-to-day. And, you know, I still have my design inspiration. I still have my design meetings, but I'm not like choosing the that Pantone. She did that. And she said, do you like this color green? It was on your mood board. Yes, I like the Pantone. Right. So like it changed things. And so part of me was drowning and like, who am I if I didn't pick that Pantone? Right. Am I still, can I c- still call myself a designer? Um, and then part of me was like, wow, what do I do with all this extra time? And that's when I said, you know, as a founder, I'm f-ing lonely. Sorry, I'm swearing a lot. It's okay. um, and I need a network of women outside of the fashion industry, which notoriously can be clickish and not sharing of information and deal flow. Right. And are there other women out there that are like lonely and need help? 
And so it was really those two things were launched out of a desire to sort of discover that. And when I saw the sheer amount of people, like we launched the Female Founder Collective at Fashion Week, Bozema helped me. Um, Bozema St. John. Love that woman so much. Um, she, she interviewed us for this panel where we talked about it and launched it. And I had a campaign that, um, people helped out with and 3000 people in two days applied. And I was like, oh my gosh, there are a lot of women who are as lonely as I am. And so we've grown it to over 25,000 members. That's incredible since 2018. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think even more importantly is the education we offer to founders who are not going to go back to school, who started a business with a passion, but then had that, oh, moment. I didn't know I needed to know how to do a profit and loss or how do I raise money. Um, and I think one of the things we're most proud of is we did a cohort during COVID for 50 women. Um, and those women have gone on to collectively raise over $30 million. So I think, you know, my goal is let's transform women at the top and help them succeed. And it all trickles down. And I'm hoping if a woman's at the top, it'll whatever's trickling down will be that much better. That, that's just phenomenal. That's just absolutely incredible. So how does one become part of the Female Founder Collective? So we have four times a year where we open applications and you join as a cohort. Um, and so you simply apply. We review your business. We make sure you are a business, that you have a product. And then, um, again, every three months we open it up. You're in. We kind of launch you as a group together. And then you're in our private community uh, where we have... It all segmented of everything you need to find. We do almost, uh, I would say, three times a week educational workshops. Then we have live events as well twice a year. We're doing a retreat in November. Yeah, I recently saw that you had a retreat in Los Angeles. We had a Female Founders Day in Los Angeles in February. And And what was that like? So I don't know about you, but I was... I like being on panels and I like speaking, but I never feel like I come away truly being able to take something and directly apply it to my business. I go, wow, she's, she's great. Right. She's inspiring. And so for us, all of our events are workshop based. We'll have the two keynote hero, famous, whatever people. But then the rest of the day is these 90 minute workshops where someone like you is teaching people whatever you're best at. And so you can pick your track. Is it PR, fundraising, marketing? And then you are learning and you are coming out of that workshop with like actual notes and tools. And then the panel at the end is nice and the drinks are fun, but it's not about how to take a selfie. Right. You know, it's really the down and dirty of business. And so that's what our Female Founders Days are. Amazing. So what is the, um, what, what's your passion now, nowadays in business? What is my passion in business? I really enjoy creating the experience of what our customer is going to have, but then our events that we do, you know, we do, whether it's fashion week or ideating the next thing. I think that's really fun for me. Um, I love designing, but it like the idea that we can like create, like we did last September with our fashion week, this immersive experience was so much work, but really fun at the end to just look back and go, oh my God, we created this incredible event and experience that lives on. And I think it's perfectly fine to stretch, you know, especially when you can, the way you've done it has been amazing. So I love 
hearing all about that story. And how's a partnership work with you and, and your team there at the Female Founders Collective? So Allie is the CEO and co-founder. She really runs that operation. Um, and I am involved in our strategy. You know, she and I talk basically every day, but our strategy where we're going, the next thing we're going to launch, obviously all of our events. Um, I'm so fortunate to know so many people. So I'm always asking more women to join or be involved or advise. Um, but she, she's guiding that ship. So we know all the disparities um, when it comes to fundraising from Vs Venture Capital for women. And, uh, you know, it still rings true today in 2023. I know that Female Founders Collective is doing a lot to change the landscape. Do you have hope for anything happening anytime soon? What do you see happening in this space? So one thing that I talk about almost like a broken record is... Lots of us are guilty of seeing the few women that have been put on magazines or gotten headlines and going, oh, I need to raise money. And the amount of people that I speak to is like, I'm fundraising, I'm fundraising. I'm like, do you all need to fundraise? I didn't fundraise. You know, like I'm not saying that building a business on a credit card or a mortgage of a house is the smart thing to do. But I think we all get stuck is that the only way to build a business is fundraise. Right. When there are other forms of capital, so this is what we do at Female Founder Collective, is like, yes, if you absolutely need to fundraise and you have a business that can go like this and you want to have a big exit and it can do that, great. But if you don't, is there purchase order financing? Is there crowdfunding? Is, you know, how do you apply for a bank loan? Um, you know, there are a lot of states that are unlocking funds if you're creating jobs. So I think it's like, here are all the ways, and it's not just I need to raise money. And I think sometimes the percentages are exaggerated because women that shouldn't be fundraising aren't getting money, right? if that makes sense. Right. So I feel like you need to arm a woman with all the tools. And like, what just happened to plain old small businesses like Main Street USA? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they didn't fundraise. So I think there's ways to do it. And yes, you're going to grow slower and it's going to, you know, be tight sometimes, but you learn a lot in those moments. You know, you, you can be really innovative sometimes when you don't have the money. And I think sometimes that's more valuable than the check. I hear you. And it's taking time and you're learning and building a network in a community and learning things and skills that allow you longevity along the way. If you didn't have that four-year period when you were young and, and inexperienced to sell your shirts and, and, you know, move forward. You learn things along the way and that's important. But I'm so happy that you said that, that folks can consider other forms of financing. Yeah. And again, it's not instant gratification. Like you got to go down the road and see what's best for you. I mean, the minute I, our bank, <clears throat> this is a long time ago, but our lender was like, once you had 5 million, like, you're going to be profitable and you could probably sell the company. And I was like, oh, let's sell the company, <laughs> you know, because it was hard and it wasn't fun. You know, I wasn't I was making twenty three thousand dollars a year and we were doing five million dollars in sales and it was it was a struggle. So I was like, easy out, please. You right. know, And my brother was like, no, we're holding on to this thing, you know, until it's a lot bigger. And guess what? We held on to it for a lot longer and it never got easier. 
So I think there's this misconception like, oh, money just makes everything better. Right. I'm so happy that you're sharing this with folks because it's going to inspire and, and, and teach people um, what they need to know to build a business. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously money does make certain things easier, but when you're growing and, and building, um, it, it, it'll always be a little tight unless you have some obnoxious beauty margin like 90%. <laughs> then it's easy. So what inspires you today? <laughs> what inspires me today? The women I meet. I love to meet inspiring women who are just kicking ass. So like talking to you gives me life pre us recording when you were sharing. I just think it's so, I don't know, that's the most inspiring thing to me. Right I know. Now. I love community and our tribe and the growing tribe. It's such a warm feeling and it's great to have great women to lean upon in moments when you're building. Yes. And community is so important. That's why I'm so happy that you guys have developed Female Founders Collective. And I absolutely love watching the journey and the rise and all the things that are happening. Um, I have so many friends that are in the collective and they constantly talk about how much they're getting Yay. from it. So that's, that's really amazing. So you've had this journey. You've been a businesswoman, power sister, CEO, for no, all. never been a CEO. Never CEO. No. Okay, scratch that. <laughs> so you've had this incredible ride for the last 20 years. Um, what is your legacy? What would you like your legacy to be? I would like it to be that women made more money, women were more successful because of what Allie and I and the incredible team there have done. I'd like it to be that like we created incredible product that a woman could eat ramen and pay her rent and have a bag. Um, but that we changed and sort of equalized things to be where they more should be. Right. Okay. I love that. So you have this beautiful family. Yes. The cute littles, four and a six month old. Leonardo yes. that was just born. Yes. He's so cute. Would you, are you thinking about them going into any of these business spaces? Would you encourage them to be in the fashion industry or? So my son wants to be a basketball player. If you know anyone at the NBA. <laughs> um, I do. <laughs> Great. I'll be calling you. We'll make that happen. I'm um, will make it I'm happen. Like, I'm not sure he's ever going to be tall enough, but I'm praying <laughs> He's going to be good he enough. He go to basketball camp and see, <laughs> see what happens. Um, my daughter is very much um, in the space. She wants to make things. And, like, she started a company and was making paper bags. And I, How old is she? She's eight. Okay. <laughs> she, so Fruit doesn't fall far from no, the tree. No, but I was like, all right, we'll get you an Instagram and we'll do a website. She's like, ugh, mom, stop. And then... She restarted a company with her friends. She's always starting companies. And then I was like, okay, I want to help you. And then she just, she'll like switch on a dime. So I'm letting her just go through these. I mean, she's eight. So I, I have plenty of time to let her do that. But she's just exploring what it's like, you know, to start something and, and ideate. And she has all these designs that she's selling for thousands of dollars. And, <laughs> um, but, but she, she thinks she also knows everything. So I'm like, why don't I teach you how to sew? And she'll be like, well, I know how to sew. And I'm like, <laughs> but you don't. So we're in that moment where she wants to start it, but she thinks she knows it all and she doesn't need to take a class. So I'm trying to figure that out. So you're leaving them to do whatever they feel like doing. Yes. Eventually. That's great. That's great. Yeah. 
So what uh, you talked about so many challenging moments um, and highs and lows and so forth. What are what have been one of your most challenging moments in business overall? I would say right before we sold our company, we had so in COVID we went um, from. I'm trying to think of the numbers. We we lost basically seventy percent of our business. Wow, March sixteenth. Um, every single one of our wholesalers canceled their orders. Um, and so that was a terrifying time. We got through it and we were like confident. We owned our e-commerce. We had an incredible like customer rapport. And I was like, we survived, you know, like we were, we were one of the few, right? And then 2021 fourth quarter, the supply chain, which hadn't affected us at all, just broke. Right. And we had an order for the fourth quarter. It's our biggest time of the year. It's where we do more than 50% of the business. We were supposed to get 300,000 units and we got 3,000 units. Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone still wants to get paid. Everyone still wants you to like, you know, and you're like, I actually don't have it because I don't have the goods. Like they're just not even made. Um, so to go through that after we, after we like almost came out of COVID so much stronger to have that happen was like, really? And that was a really tough time where we just had no new product, couldn't ship anything. We, we recycled bags. When I say that, like shot them 20 different ways. This is a spring bag. No, just kidding. It's a fall bag. No, you want this bag in summer? We got that same color, same style. Um, and it was a, it was a creative exercise. And so, you know, it really showed us that we needed to be partners with someone who had supply chain and who had the might, the muscle that could have a sourcing arm that could pivot in those moments. And so we ended up, um, getting acquired in February of 22. Amazing. But 2021 was that, that end of that year was pretty dark. I hear you. And you made it through. So many people have these stories of success and challenges, of course. So what and what would you, what advice do you have or what are your thoughts on choosing the right partners? Because I mean, along the way, there's so many ups and downs and I'm sure that you've learned something yep. about the type of persona in the type of partner someone should be looking for in their business. Yeah. So people might be scared to get married, but you should be more scared to to take on a partner because that contract is is more complicated than any marriage document. Um, and they they can have or have not a lot of power. So we had private equity investment about seven years into the brand, two different rounds. And thank God they didn't have majority control because if they did, we wouldn't be here. Um, it was about numbers on a spreadsheet and optimizing your company for an exit in seven years because that's when their fund ends. Right. And so no one is planning for the future, the long-term health and success of an 18-year-old brand if they're like, oh, got to return the money to my shareholders in seven years. Um, so be careful who you take money from, what type of firm it is. Um, you know, sometimes borrowing can be more expensive, but at least you own, you know, your destiny versus an investment in someone else telling you what that destiny should be. So make sure you like the person. Right. Uh, make sure they know your business. You know, the the person that sat 
on our board came from protein bars. Like, what does he know about handbags? Yeah. So that was it that, you know, we wanted the woman who knew about brands and building fashion and we didn't get her. We got the protein bar man. So like our advice wasn't so great. Right. So you have to really make sure. And they sure. wield so much power over advice and counsel. I mean, I consult with brands and I'm constantly hearing about advice and counsel from investors and board members that make absolutely no sense and they've never been in the category. Right. So what uniquely qualifies you aside from being able to raise capital to advise this person on a space that they've been in, you know, or yep. have a passion for. Right. So, yeah, you just got to be careful who you're getting in bed with. And like, yes, you're going to get 100 no's before you get one yes. But when you get that yes, is that the right person? Are you so relieved? Like, oh, finally, someone wants to give me money. But you got to make sure it's the right person. Otherwise, it's it's a lot of headache and heartache. Well, Rebecca, you're Teflon. To have made <laughs> it this far and to have this journey is, is really incredible. And um, I think that it's just a testament to who you are and, and where you're growing. I know you don't know what's next, but what is next? What are you thinking? What am I thinking? Well, the good news is that we're growing again. And I really, you know, to go through the last two years, which were really tough, um, to see us go back to growth is really exciting. And I don't have anything outside of that that I, I'm not even hiding anything. I don't even know what's next. And I just, that's, and that's perfect. Like fine. I'm excited. Like, you know, again, my CEO, she was like, it's starting. Get on, get on the ride, saddle in, cause the wave, our wave is coming. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let's ride it. I hear that. I hear that. So it's really challenging, I think, to be in a contemporary space in the fashion industry and compete with other brands. How has that been challenging for you or how did you mitigate that through the years? So the first time it became challenging was a long time ago. Contemporary brands were in the $500 range and luxury was, let's say, two, $3,000. During the recession in 2008 and 2009, luxury started lowering their price points. Right. So you could get a St. Laurent for as low as $700. Is it the big bag? No, but it's like a little something. And when they started pushing down, we had to go lower, which Man. crunches your margin. Yeah. Um, and so I think for us, you know, a woman is buying a bag two times per year, two to four times per year. So with opportunities like pay as you go, is she going to buy that luxury bag because it costs her $10 a month for the next five years or the Rebecca Minkoff? And so, you know, we're constantly touting ourselves as accessible luxury, um, but you're constantly needing to bring in traffic, right? Because she's only buying two times a year, Um for the investment purchase. And so it's like, you're always acquiring new customers and that is hard and right. it's tiring. And it would be nice if you could just have the customer that buys you needs a new bag every week or month, you know? And what's, and, and how are you acquiring the customers? How, what is, you know, your trajectory these days for, you know, um, consumer acquisition? It's changed in the last 10 years and it's even changed since 2020, I'd say. So where are we finding new customers in business for consumer brands, fashion brands? <clears throat> so I don't think we're doing anything out of the ordinary. We have a hefty paid marketing budget, you know, 
affiliates. Um, text message really performs well for us. And we were one of the first in 2020 to start using text messaging. Um, and then we have our top of funnel events. Like we did an event in the Hamptons, um, a couple weeks ago or our fashion weeks. If we do something this season, which I don't know if we will, but I think those are our moments to sort of get the name recognition out there. And then we're hitting you and following you and, you know, not that I love Cambridge Analytical scandal, <laughs> but it was a lot easier to market to people when you could get those analytics. You right. know, we knew our customers so much better. Yeah. You know, having the analytics are important. And I just it's great for folks to know that, you know, it's it's really a machine. It's not just I made a bag, I made a dress here and you post on Instagram and it shows up. There's so much behind the scenes. We've talked about analytics. We've talked about, you know, top of funnel affiliate, all of the things that you've done to keep this business afloat, the ups and the downs and so forth. But it's, you know, here and thriving. And that's just really impressive, um, especially for a brand in the contemporary space where the margin has been pushed down. So that was really important to, to hear. I found that really interesting. Yeah. And we've even, we've even started pushing our pricing back up and we're finding that she's not uh, mad at it. You know, like if, if the, if the design and the look and the feel is, is worth it, she'll pay for it. Yeah. So being inside the fashion industry for so many years, do you feel that there were enough resources around? Like, what do you wish you had? Of course, we have the CFDA. Is there something else that would have been beneficial or we should have now? There needs to be an organization that supports designers that aren't just the 1%. And when I say that, there are a slew of favorites. Oh, man. Um, and they're not even doing a lot of business, but they're pressworthy and someone at, at the top likes them. And then there are the rest of us that are actually creating tons of jobs, boosting the economy with big businesses. And it's like, oh, you're commercial. We're going to ignore you. And so I wish there was an organization that would support all designers and be more inclusive and come to the bigger companies. And, and just because we're bigger doesn't mean we don't have any problems or we don't need anything. Our problems might be different. Right. Um, like you said, what are, how do you, how are you reaching the customer? If luxury did drop their prices, you know, what are those challenges that we're facing that, that are a struggle? Um, and so I think. There could be the, an, a, another new organization that has workshops and actual things that help solve true challenges versus just looking pretty. And it could even be virtual. I mean, I've, I've yeah. you know, sitting on boards and and assessing things. I've been impressed to see how many wonderful businesses in this space are making really great profits, employing tons of people. And they don't get the love or support that they need because they're not the shiny penny. Correct. And the shiny pennies often aren't making any money, but they're a shiny penny. And then they're here and then they're gone. Yep. That's why I really wanted to have you on the show and just talk to you about the longevity and, and some insights about things that, that folks need. I think that would be really important to have to support those folks across the country. And one thing I have to say is during the pandemic, I discovered through jumping on Clubhouse a couple of times some of these companies where the shiny pennies are talking and this person is making millions right. in Tennessee, unbeknownst, you know, to us and, and really thriving in business. And it would be great to be able to build community around them in that. 
And and share, right? I think within the fashion industry, I went to an event at, um, I won't share his name, but it was a bunch of really big brands. And I think there was only two women there and all the brands were just bragging. And I was like, that is not the point of this. This, we're all supposed to be sharing like, what's hard? How do we help each other? What are you running into? And I was like, why don't we share? It's like, we're ashamed to share what we're struggling with because we got to look like we have our shit together all the time. Right. And that drives me crazy. I think I'm seeing more community and um, transparency in, you know, because of organizations like communities like Female Founders Collective or the We Suite, where there's a lot of transparency and support. Yeah. Um, where folks are just sharing their pain points and able to 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 grow from that. Sharing your pain points is one way to really move the needle forward. Yeah, you got to be vulnerable. It's no one has it figured out. So you're a New Yorker. Yeah, staying here or what? <laughs> I live a life that's a bit of a circus right now. We are in Florida for seven months out of the year. Started last year. It was yes. a trial. I think we're going to do it again. I remember that. I yeah. thought it was just like a, a month or so. No. So um, my kids go to school down there for seven months out of the nine months of Amazing. the school year. And then I fly up and down every other week. And then I'm here from June to November. So um, you're a nomad. I am a nomad. And my husband, I was like, I don't know why this lifestyle bothers you so much. And it like hit me <laughs> yesterday. I was like. I'm never not in a suitcase and I, this is a lot. Right, right, right. Well, Rebecca, it's been so fun having you here and getting all these insights on business. You are such a force and it's so inspiring. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. How do we find you? You can follow me at Rebecca Minkoff if you want my personal life at Becky Minkoff. You can listen to my podcast, Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff and order a damn bag, RebeccaMinkoff.com. We're going to do that. This is Yumindi Francis, and this is What's Next Podcast with Yumindi Francis. Ciao. That was fun. <laughs>